Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, At the start of the new year, France entered a pivotal period that will shape its political trajectory at both the national and European levels. On the one hand, we're now only a few months out from the country's presidential election in April, with the campaign getting into full swing as various candidates from across the political spectrum attempt to upset President Macron's bid for re-election. And while the polls suggest that Macron remains the favorite, the rise of new challengers and the ongoing volatility presented by COVID-19 have made that result far from certain. At the same time, France has now begun its six-month rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union, during which Macron will attempt to implement his long list of policy priorities for the EU, including his much-discussed push for greater European strategic autonomy. So to discuss these issues and more, we're really happy to have both Celia Boleyn and Tara Varma uh, join the podcast. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you, Andrea and Jim. Uh, Very quick bios for both of you. Celia is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, and her areas of expertise include transatlantic relations, U.S. foreign policy towards Europe, and French politics and foreign policy. And Tara Varma is a senior policy fellow and head of the Paris office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, where she follows French foreign policy and European security developments. Okay, so I thought maybe we would start with the French election. Um, And Celia, can you kind of just get us rolling by setting the landscape? Um, I saw the news today um, that uh, one of the candidates, Mr. Zamor, was just found guilty again um, of hate speech and inciting racial hatred. We know the left is largely in disarray. So can you kind of paint a picture of the landscape at this point going into the elections uh, upcoming in April? So, of course, uh, this election, as we all know, is uh, the election where uh, Emmanuel Macron might be launching his re-election campaign. He has not yet declared as a candidate, but he will, um, and everybody knows it, be a candidate for his own re-election. And what happens is that you have a whole field of uh, challengers to oppose him. And uh, at the present moment, still only three months before the election, less than 100 days away from having um, designated the new uh, president or re-elected Emmanuel Macron, we don't have a main challenger to Emmanuel Macron. Many, most would have expected Marine Le Pen, his main challenger from 2017, to be uh, the one in a position to uh, be in the second round. Marine Le Pen, uh, the head of the national rally, far-right party in France, was the one opposing Macron in 2017. But she's been in fierce competition in her own own camp, but by Eric Zemmour, as you said, who emerged um, last summer, the the TV polemicist who has been repeatedly condemned for his racism um, and who has launched this sort of insurgency campaign that many compared to Trump and that really uh, took the, the the, the, the massive part of the political conversation all over the fall but reached a limit, and we may uh, want to come back on this, not only for his extremism, but most recently, uh, he got involved into many controversy, and and, and one commentator was just saying, um, he's just plain mean, you know, he's just 
too angry for uh, to meet the public at this juncture. So basically, at the moment, Marine Le Pen and, and Eric Zemmour are sort of um, neutralizing each other. Then you have the emergence uh, in the mid-November of uh, Valérie Pécresse, who is the Les Républicains uh, candidate, the conservative right candidate. She won the primary. Uh, she's the first female candidate for this party, and uh, she could be a, a, a tough contender for uh, Emmanuel Macron. At the moment, she's also sort of stuck in the 15, 18, 20% range of uh, vote intention with Marine Le Pen, with Eric Zemmour. So at the moment, these are the three candidates that are, um, along with Emmanuel Macron, the ones that are most likely to be in the second round. And then you have a whole set of other candidates on the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left candidate, um, Yannick Jadot from the Greens, uh, Annie Hidalgo from the Socialist Party, and, and most recently, uh, Christian Taubira, um, another a new addition to this a number of leftist candidates that struggle to reach uh, um, 10%. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Yannick Jadot could make it to 10%, but uh, the left is not united, couldn't find uh, as much as the far right, I must say, uh, couldn't find a single candidate. All of this division clearly favors Emmanuel Macron at the present moment. He hasn't, uh, you know, he's, he's polling around 25, 27% even uh, most recently in the first round and could easily make it to the second round. And in the second round, there's a there's a question mark, but um, but there's a likelihood uh, that at the present moment he's he's well positioned uh, for his own re-election. Whether we are still in the same situation, uh, you know, a month from now remains to be seen. Because one of the the other main element that I would highlight is that we are France is in the middle of a massive Omicron. Uh, wave uh, with uh, more than uh, 250,000 uh, cases, 300,000 uh, cases per day, um, and and a rate of hospitalization that is that has increased uh, to more than 40 percent, I believe, uh, of uh, ICU occupation. Uh, so a lot of pressure on the system, a lot of restrictions for uh, everyday people. All of this has shifted the conversation away from politics and back to, you know, just plain everyday life. And so this might not be the moment of crystallization of political ideas of political vote intention just yet. It remains to be seen whether in a month uh, things have shifted, you know, away from Emmanuel Macron and towards one of these challenges. Thanks, Celia. That's a super helpful kind of foundation for understanding what's going on. Tara, I'm going to let you add to that, but I also think there's a question many are wondering, which is kind of the extent to which uh, France's EU presidency is a complicating factor or not um, for Macron and his campaign. Thanks a lot. Just maybe one sentence to add to uh, uh, the great overview that Celia gave. Macron is, for now, the first incumbent in 20 years to actually be the frontrunner for his own re-election. This hasn't happened in 20 years. And last time it happened in 2002, it happened 
as an accident, basically. Jacques Chirac was not supposed to be the president, but he found himself in the second round against Jean-Marie Le Pen. So Marine Le Pen's father, the, the historic founder of this far right party, and, and Chirac won uh, by, by a total landslide victory. But this, so Sarkozy left, um, lost, sorry, in 2012, Hollande lost in 2017. And so there is a question also for Macron now, whether he's going to overturn uh, um, this curse for, for these uh, presidents of the 2000s. Um, in terms of the EU presidency, I I think he's going to use it as much as possible. Um, a number of his advisors and ministers are saying that he is not going to use it, but I think... This is a culmination of everything that he's tried he's tried to achieve in in the past five years. You know, he's been calling for European uh, um, strategic autonomy or European sovereignty, mostly uh, since the Sorbonne, the founding speech, the Sorbonne speech of 2017, where he presented his ambition for Europe and the role that France should play in this European ambition. We have a difficulty here. I mean, he has a difficulty. Um, which is either that the, the it's a fortunate or an unfortunate calendar that um, there is a coincidence between the French presidential campaign and the French EU presidency, uh, the French presidency of the EU Council, more precisely. Um, because basically these uh, presidencies only last six months normally, and in the current French context, it is going to last three months. Most officials will tell you not at all, it's going to last until June. But the reality of the matter is in April and May, there's going to be an election, a campaign for the presidential election. And then in May, a campaign for the parliamentary elections uh, in June. Ministers and officials won't be allowed to speak during that period. So, you know, there is going to be a contingency plan. But in terms of promoting their ideas and the presence of French political presence, that's certainly going to be diminished. This being said, um, Macron has presented himself as the most pro-European candidate on the French political landscape. The socialist candidates and the Green are very pro-European too, but as Celia said, for now, they have dismal uh, voting shares in, in the polls that we're seeing. And so against Valérie Pécresse, Marine Le Pen and Éric Zemmour, and I'm not putting all the three together in the same basket, but clearly he's going to be a lot more pro-European, pro-EU. We still need to see where Valérie Pécresse is going. She released an op-ed in December where her European programmatic platform was very close to, to that of Macron. And she released a few tweets in the past few days, which tend to put her more to the right of the debate. Um, there is going to be one other element in addition to the French EU presidency, which is, of course, escalating tensions on the Ukrainian-Russian border. Um, because I don't know if your, your auditors, listeners know that, but actually there is also another contradiction in the French uh, debate, which is that despite France's standing as a multilateral actor uh, and a big diplomatic presence, you know, an important diplomatic actor, an important, sorry, diplomatic actor, even within the EU, foreign policy is very rarely a hot topic in presidential campaigns. Uh, so usually it's like barely mentioned. I think this is not going to be possible now. 
And the very fact that it's the Russia issue is going to make it even more contentious because France is often suspected of having uh, some sort of complacency towards the Kremlin uh, and, and the person that is sitting in the Kremlin. And so there is going to be a special responsibility for France holding the EU presidency of the council in defending European interests and, and making sure that there is European unity in the face of, of this coming aggression. Well, thank you both for, uh, that's just fantastic. I think for the, our American audience particularly, but I think in Europe too, among our German listeners and others where relations with uh, France are so important. I think this has given something to all of us to build on as we watch what happens in the coming weeks. I really appreciate it. Um, but I'd like to ask something that's probably more more of a of, uh, focus maybe of a um, US audience. Um, you, you all mentioned uh, Zamor, of course, and that he's Trump-like, and people talk about Boris Johnson as being Trump-like. And, um, and so I think there's probably a misperception or a more simplistic uh, view in, in, in the United States that Trump himself has sparked off these copycats, if you will, in Europe. Uh, Boris Johnson taking Trump tactics, Zemmour sounds like Trump. Of course, in Germany, you know, the AFD and a lot of anti-vaxxers. I mean, that's, I, think, um, I, I think there's probably this feeling that all these uh, copycats, they're all cousins, you know, they're, they are all, um, they're all uh, watching what Trump did uh, a few years ago and wanted to try to copy that. I think it's much more complicated than that. Uh, I think uh, these political figures arose and took on their tactics and their views based on their own uh, outlook and politics in their own countries, et cetera, et cetera. And it just so happens that they, they sound like they're related to Trump, but they're not really connected to Trump. And so, I mean, that's kind of what my feeling is, but I was wondering if what you two uh, think, I mean, uh, are, are the Trump's spark a movement or has that movement always been there and Trump is riding the wave like these other people are and, uh, and that you really can't draw a real tight, tight relationship between Trump and, uh, and like-minded politicians in Europe, Tara. So to be fair or not fair to the Europeans, actually Brexit happened. I mean, the decision of uh, the United Kingdom to leave the EU happened before Trump was elected, a few months before. And I think there was clearly a sense in Europe of a sequence between the June vote of 2016 and the November 2016 vote where Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won. And there was really a sense that these six months was what we called, so we called it at the time the post-truth moment, uh, the populist movement. And so I think these figures, they nourish one another. At the same time, if I look at what happened in the 2017 French presidential election, Marine Le Pen uh, went to the US, she tried to meet with Donald Trump to show that she had support from him. That's right. And that kind of took a massive toll on her credibility in France. This was five years ago, things are very different now, but I think at the time she thought it would give her um, a lot of energy, a lot of political energy and support from others. And that was not the case in France. We would need to see if it, it might be different with Eric Zemmour, but at the time, the, the card that she played clearly didn't help her. And um, so I will add to that because this is a very, very interesting uh, question, Jim, and, and Tara said it well. So, so 
Brexit has actually precedence on, on Donald Trump. I do remember that when uh, Donald Trump was elected, actually a lot of uh, people said that he was the most European of all American leaders in the sense that he reminded them of actually Silvio Berlusconi, you know, the the businessman, um, the 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 t- uh, and, and and you know TV magnet that um, uh, was able to play not on the traditional uh, you know conservative Republican or um, uh, Christian right idea of um, of politics, but rather on um, on 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 instrumentalizing the idea of nationalism and national identity, and. Uh, this uh, this sort of national identitarian uh, brand of politics was uh, an anti-immigration brand of politics of uh, Donald Trump was rather unusual in the American context and was comparable to European um, far-right leaders, including Jean-Marie Le Pen, father of Marine Le Pen, who has been in prominent in French politics since the 1980s. So really, if anybody invented this sort of uh, nationalist populist far right, uh, it might just be the French. Uh, in this case, we're not so proud of it. But uh, so, so, uh, but what has happened is that this um, crisis of national identity was sweeping the West indeed in the uh, mid uh, 2010s. And it, it swept the US, it swept the UK, but also France in 2017 when Macron was elected, he had to face Marine Le Pen. Um, in in this uh, competitive election, and she lost uh, partly because there was a rally around Macron to uh, defend uh, the presidency against her, but also because she turned out to be quite the poor candidate as well and and lacking uh, talent. The crisis of the national identity in France not only dates back a very long time, but has been revived through, I would say, uh, the pressure of at least two elements. One of them is, of course, terror attacks. You have to understand that the rise of these far right candidates and uh, of Zemmour this year is very much linked of a fear of um, jihadi uh, Islamic terror attacks that has translated into a, a, a fear of Islam and a rejection of uh, you know, uh, Muslim communities in France as well that has translated also in anti-immigration stances. Uh, all of this uh, sort of um, strong Islamophobia has, uh, has uh, nourished uh, this uh, brand of Eric Zemmour. The, the second element I would say comes from the great recession as well and all the uh, inequalities even after the recovery that stem out of it, we saw it in the yellow vest movements where you have such rising inequalities with disenfranchised rural communities that have less mobility, less purchasing power, less capacity to climb the social ladder. All of this has um, created a a sort of a demand for more populist, um, locally rooted, nationalist uh, brand of politics that that, uh, Zemmour and and Marine Le Pen have been seizing. You add on that the the COVID crisis and the uh, in in France, it's uh, it you know it it crystallized in particular around the the digital health pass and the capacity of the state to change to to check your vaccination status with uh, now uh, demands for uh, you know um, uh, 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 
sort of a reaction from civil society to protect their own liberties. I'm putting all of these questions together, but basically it, it comes together as um, nourishing this anti-system, anti-immigration nationalist movement that, that is still flourishing in France as much as in other uh, European countries. And when you have this uh, sort of um, uh, fertile ground for these ideas, a, a candidate then, such as Eric Zemmour, does use, you know, Trumpy tricks. And the Trumpy trick, that's where he's inspired by Donald Trump. It's going to be in the, the, uh, the way uh, to communicate with the media and the way to be aggressive and to, to, be, to create, to generate news media for yourself so as to benefit from free publicity or um, uh, the way uh, he, uh, he, he, he played on the, the sort of revengeist um, of uh, the, the, the sort of white male complex of uh, some of his ele potential electorate. All of these elements surely have, you know, these are like uh, uh, political communicate, communication um, um, strategies that have been inspired you know, across the Atlantic. And clearly Donald Trump is a strong figure in that movement, but he has not uh, invented the movement by any means. I know Jim wants to inject a question too, but I wanted to ask one thing really quickly directly related to this, because Tara, you were talking about Macron as one of the more pro-EU candidates in the, on the, uh, in the campaign. Um, but I'm reminded by on New Year's Eve when France put up the colors of the on the Eiffel Tower of the EU and they displayed the EU flag from the Arc de Triomphe and that um, elicited very strong backlash. So I, I, I guess my question is just to provide some context about, you know, the you know, how um, expansive is the sentiment, Celia, that you're describing? Is it still relatively reserved to a small vocal minority? Um, and, you know, is it a liability or is it a benefit for Macron to be the more pro-EU candidate? Is there still a large part of the French public that supports that idea and that vision for France? Just to kind of put the, the far right stuff into context because that backlash with the EU flag and, you know, it was, it was notable. I think you're pointing really to the big issue for Macron here. Um, it was a big win for him in 2017. It was a relatively good win in the European parliamentary elections in 2019. And clearly, he's going to play on this and to weaponize, if I may say, the EU presidency to that purpose. Um, you're right, there was a big scandal that kind of transcended the political spectrum in France. So initially, Marine Le Pen uh, and Éric Zemmour were the first to react. A few hours later, Valérie Pécresse, the conservative uh, mainstream candidate, tweeted as well that she was in favor of presiding the EU, but not of um, erasing our French identity. So first of all, we are not presiding the EU, we're presiding the council of the EU, which is not exactly the same thing. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, on a personal matter, I mean, it's really strange to me that we're dissociating, you know, the French and European identity. France is a founding member of the European Union, I think. It is a matter of, of you know, great pride that we're doing this. And the fact that we're thinking we can't um, uh, 
uh, add these two identities to ourselves is a bit problematic, but we can get back to that. Uh, the far left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, also said that uh, he wanted uh, uh, for this to be taken down. And in a way, Macron is doubling down on this. He's, I think they announced this morning that the picture of the European flag on, under the Arc de Triomphe is going to be his, um, uh, the picture representing his presidential campaign. So I, he is doubling down on this. I think he's making... He's taking a bet. There is a sense of Euroscepticism in France. I think that's absolutely clear. He's very conscious of that also, by the way. I think the whole play that he made um, since uh, 2017 on European sovereignty is supposed to play both for or with a European audience, but it's, I would say, mostly directed at a French audience. Uh, there is a sense for a number of French people that institutions, European institutions in Brussels are this huge bureaucratic machine, very far away from their preoccupations. It's totally inefficient. And he said all, all along that he wants to show how Europe can be efficient, how Europe can protect its citizens. So protected not just by building borders around the continent, but actually by using um, the power of the EU, which is for now, mostly it's single markets and to project this power uh, within and beyond its borders. And this is what he's tried to, to defend as much as possible. This is why I say I think he's going to, to make use of the EU presidency as much as possible, because there are 60 priorities that have been listed for this EU uh, council presidency. There are going to be big summits. So we need to see whether they happen online or in person. I would say a lot of it is going to happen online in the next couple of, uh, in the next few weeks. There's going to be um, uh, one summit about strengthening our ties with Africa, which is one of his big priorities. There's going to be uh, one on the Indo-Pacific, <laughs> despite AUKUS. Uh, and there's going to be one on European defense and strategic autonomy with the presentation and adoption, I mean, presumed adoption of what we call the strategic compass, which you've discussed in, in uh, prior podcasts as well. But he's going to show this as, as much as possible and present himself as a statesman. He is the candidate who knows all of the leaders of the 26 other member states of the EU. He is the political leaders who knows Joe Biden, who knows Xi Jinping, who knows Erdogan, I mean, who knows Vladimir Putin. And clearly, when it comes to European and foreign policy, he has a massive advance on all the other candidates. All the other candidates have honestly little knowledge of European affairs and, um, and foreign affairs. And so he's going to play on this as much as possible. In 2017, he played the technical card that was this famous debate with Marine Le Pen, where, and, and Celia alluded to this earlier, um, she got confused and, and, you know, she didn't seem very coherent. And he kept saying, okay, let's talk about this file. Let's go talk about this other file. And he was able to detail really technical issues, technical points of these massive industrial files that, and, and in contrast, he seemed a lot more, um, in master of, of, of the role already of president. I don't think he's going to go into these technicalities now. He's actually going to kind of transcend uh, Charles de Gaulle, to transcend François Mitterrand. This is what he wants to do. He wants to say, I, I am going to be one of those presidents of the Fifth Republic who stand out. And I think there is a sense for him of trying to, to make Macronism a new foreign policy strand in, in French foreign policy. So I think this is really his objective and to give it this, this European essence, this European dimension that actually um, very few have these days. 
Could could I jump in? Uh, I, uh, I I that that was really great, and I have so many questions, but I but I think I'll choose this one to ask, and that is, you know, it's interesting that he's going to double down on the EU and the French EU presidency, and he's going to do that because at the same time, I think that the EU is going to face in the coming month a growing criticism that the EU, in fact, has not done a very good job of protecting its citizens from a threat like Russia. Ukraine, of course, is not in the EU, but 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 there is certainly anxiety uh, sweeping the transatlantic community about um, about Russia and Russian aggression and how we don't we seem not to have any tools to 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 stop him. Uh, and so the, everyone has the jitters. And so, um, uh, you know, the, the EU has come under criticism that they haven't really played much of a role. Borrell kind of stomps around and huffs and puffs and uh, tries to make it look like the EU is influencing things, but we know that they're not. And so uh, if an invasion takes place uh, and if it is, you know, who knows what it might look like, uh, but if it's something that is uh, horrible uh, and uh, and it truly traumatizes Europe, I don't think the EU is going to come out looking very good uh, in terms of a role of protecting its people. And, you know, NATO's not going to look so great either. Uh, neither will the U.S., by the way. So so there can be a lot of losers who will come, who will have egg on their face from this invasion. But I think for Macron, uh, running on the EU, being the French presidency of the EU, but not being able to show much uh, in terms of the, the, the big crisis of the day, which is Russia, I would think he, he might not want to, you know, double down <laughs> at a time like this when there's going to be such a big challenge for the EU that they might lose on. So what do you all think about that? On that point, but Macron could be a big, you, you, Macron could be a big loser too, because I mean, he, you know, this I think demonstrates what's happening, the escalation uh, with the Ukraine crisis demonstrates that Macron's approach turns out to to have been terribly naive um, and misguided. And so, I mean, in this, it, you know, it's the EU, but also Macron himself, I think totally misgaged, misjudged, miscalculated about the about how to work uh, and engage President Putin. So isn't he a big loser in all of this also? Just to add, you mean referring to the Normandy uh, process and Minsk too, where he was a big uh, driver of that, as I remember. It's that too, but just kind of his general approach to wanting to have dialogue. I think there were concerns early on that maybe Russia was moving too close to China. And certainly if we just reach out and engage Russia that, you know, we could be in a different place. So I don't know. We just gave you both a lot to chew on. So pick what you want. Celia, do you want to kick it off? So uh, on this particular point, I think you're giving too much credit to French voters in the terms of their capacity to know the technicality, the fact that, uh, you know, the Normandy format was launched and maybe it wasn't that successful. It's not that people would, you know, some people would uh, not know about it, but even the media might not want to go back on, on, on the, the types of um, um, format that were set up before, they will really look forward in what's happening now and what's how how do we deal with the crisis now? Um, and and in any case, yes, a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be absolute terrible news for everybody. No questions asked, and extremely unsettling for uh, French politics, European politics. I would I dare say American politics, uh, and more importantly for uh, everybody's uh, security and well-being and would be just a massive tragedy. 
which is why I don't think we we have any idea how the dust would settle or how uh, what type of um, consequences it would have. Because on the one hand, yes, it could be perceived as a massive failure of uh, either uh, European unity, but let's see if the unity keeps um, keeps uh, taking place or if there's disunity at the heart of Europe. But uh, it uh, in in the middle of of such a crisis where you have a uh, you know maybe a failure of Europe, you would also have potentially a rally around the president effect that uh, Emmanuel Macron has been in power for five years. Would you want to put anybody else in power? And some of them, especially on the right, have been more than cozy with Russia. Um, uh, there's a long tradition, obviously, on the in far right circles for. Um, sort of celebration of Vladimir Putin for being the defender of, you know, white Christianity uh, type of uh, arguments, uh, but also in the more conservative right, where um, uh, I don't know personally about uh, Valérie Pécresse, but there's a, a long uh, tradition of uh, admiring uh, Russia and um, and uh, Russian culture, Russian um, um uh, power uh, and also a sort of uh, instinctive uh, anti-American streak or at least um, defiance towards uh, sort of what is perceived as American imperialism and 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 this uh, this tradition would uh, you know be um, put in a in a in a very contradictory uh, position if uh, Russia were to be the clear aggressor of uh, Ukraine. So all of this to say that really, who knows how uh, this would have a, a consequence. What it would do, clearly it would derail Emmanuel Macron's European agenda profoundly. He would, it would uh, change uh, the conversation at the for the strategic compass, but more generally for all the priorities of the European Union. There is also one possibility, which is that in the face of a crisis, what you see as much as we've seen with the, the, the Great Recession, what we've seen with the, um, uh, the uh, immigration refugee crisis of 2015 or with the COVID crisis, you first have um, divide, divisions and disputes at the European level. And then at some point, the EU find its way and find its way to move forward. And usually out of a good crisis, you know, you have a bunch of reforms and, uh, but you have victims along the way. And uh, one of the elements of, of a, a massive crisis that I worry about um, at, uh, in Ukraine would be obviously uh, stability of Ukraine, a potential, you know, what about there was a movement of people? What about there was refugees? What about there was, uh, a, a demand for uh, humanitarian protection of population. How would uh, Europe be able to step up? All of this is extremely unsettling. The, the only good way forward for everyone would be to find a way for diplomacy to work, stability to emerge. And uh, this is uh, just on ongoing. And that, that would be the Macron's top priority for sure. Tar, did you want to add? Sure. On, on Jim's uh, unity point, because this is also what we've been hearing a lot, that, you know, decisions on European security are being made without Europeans. What we've been hearing from French and European diplomats is that's not really the case. 
if you look, so last week was quite an intensive diplomatic week on Ukraine and Russia, and it's going to be the same uh, this week. But last week, there were the Geneva talks, bilateral talks between Russia and the U.S., um, the U.S. and Europeans uh, concurred that there were consultations prior to the negotiations and after, and so Americans and Europeans were kept uh, informed what, of what was going on. Um, uh, then there was the NATO-Russia Council, where there was uh, American and European unity, a strong NATO unity, which I think you know, was important to note. And then finally, at the end of the week, the OSCE meeting, where there was the same show of unity. Um, and as a French diplomat put it to me uh, a few days ago, um, it's not because there was unity in the end that we started uh, uh, with unified positions. And the very fact that there was a sense that there needed to be this unity both among Europeans and also amongst Americans and Europeans, I think, is, is quite remarkable. It's, you know, it's not enough. Um, we still need to move forward. There are still discussions that are going on, but the fact that there is this level of consultation uh, is quite important. For now, the EU, um, we know, doesn't have the instruments to defend itself, but NATO is supposed to do that. And I think there is a sense that as long as we show unity in all the formats of discussion, that uh, uh, dialogue remains the first, you know, the go-to the go-to um, go instrument, the the, the go-to tool. I think that's that is still quite uh, quite important. There seems to be a divergence of I was going to say of views, but maybe um, diverging analysis of the data and information that is coming uh, back to the Americans and the Europeans. The Americans indeed seem to think that there is going to be an invasion really in the coming days. The Europeans are trying to to see whether that's uh, you know, if, if we're talking about the same imminence of, of a potential attack, but in any case, what we're hearing is that both Americans and Europeans are preparing for all scenarios. And I think that, you know, this display of unity is not just a display. I think it probably it has unsettled the Kremlin quite a bit uh, because they were not expecting that. Uh, um, lack of cohesion amongst Europeans happens quite a bit. And, and especially when it comes to foreign policy and the massively contentious issue that is Russia, it's kind of easy for us to, to go all, um, all in different directions. But what we've seen until now is, uh, I would say, a show of strength. What we need to do now, I mean, in the, the uh, mid to long term is, I think, if we manage to do it as Europeans, at least have the upper hand when it comes to defining the political agenda, because what we're doing now is trying to answer or, or to postpone the Kremlin's demands. And we're still in a position where Moscow is imposing something and we're trying to reply to that. Ideally, European security would be decided by Europeans. By Europeans, yeah. I just wanted to come back on, on one point that you raised, Andrea, the fact that, um, as you remember, the French uh, Emmanuel Macron in, in 2019 announced that he would seek a dialogue, a reopening of a dialogue with Russia, a bilateral uh, dialogue between France and Russia, uh, open to um, coordinate uh, consultation, or I, I don't know the word he used, with other Europeans. But basically, um, he did this uh, on under fire of criticism from other Europeans, in particular Eastern European partners, who considered that, you know, why would France um, um, uh, raise uh, the like, why would France talk to Russia at a moment when um, 
uh, without coordination with uh, other Europeans, and it, it was uh, perceived as a, as a form of a betrayal. It arrived at a moment also when Emmanuel Macron gave a big interview in The Economist where he talked about the brain dead NATO. And so the, the confluence of these events, the, um, uh, the, the launch of this uh, bilateral uh, discussion dialogue and, and uh, the interview, appeared for some um, Europeans as, uh, you know, typically French, anti-American and ambiguous in its relationship with Russia. Today, France is basically saying, listen, when we launched this dialogue, it was out of a, a fundamental understanding that there is a problem with the European security architecture, and that Russia will be either the key to resolving it or one of the, the key element to resolving it or the spoiler that will uh, sort of um, uh, weigh and destroy the, 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 sec the security uh, situation of Europe. So basically Russia is just too important to ignore. They consider with this crisis that actually this was the right instinct. And what they discover is that um, when the US takes that role of discussing with, um, uh, with Russia directly, even if the US says, as Wendy Sherman says, uh, you know, it's, it, we're not gonna talk um, about Europe without Europe. So a very strong uh, intent on, on coordinating with Europe, on, on, be, on getting Europe in, in the room, et cetera, and keeping the unity in the transatlantic allies. At the end of the day, the other Europeans are deferring to the US the capacity to talk in their name about their own security. And the French feel an immense frustration that first, they are not the ones that are uh, being deferred to. Okay, understandable, you know, maybe they're just one member out of uh, 27 and why, or uh, if we take the whole of um, uh, Europe, uh, they're, they're just one country, but why would European not work towards elaborating and defending a common collective security position on what do they want exactly? And what do they always um, go back to this uh, uh, position of junior partner to the US, letting them you know, basically set uh, the tone and the standard of the relationship. There's, and this will weigh on the French presidency at a moment when the French uh, focus on European defense will want to, you know, through the strategic compass and other means, want to see a strong, you know, European strategic autonomous voice emerge from Europe. This crisis is actually reverting everybody sort of back to the old days uh, in terms of behavior to the great frustration of, uh, of France. And I will add one point is that we are uh, at, unfortunately seeing at the same time uh, some deterioration of the situation in the Sahel. The Sahel was one of the places where uh, European partners have demonstrated that they also can work together um, to on security and defense. And Sweden just announced that uh, its uh, military advisors were leaving um, the Takuba uh, mission because of the deterioration of the situation. So the paradox of the strategic compass and the uh, French presidency is that it, it's arriving at a moment when European defense will appear at, it, at its weakest. And even though that's fundamentally what France believe is needed is this 
working together for a collective voice. Just to jump in real quick, uh, and then Andrea, I know, has a question for you, but I think you're absolutely right. This moment of crisis in Europe is either France's time and the EU's time to show that um, that uh, the French, uh, the well, the French voice, but the European voice and Europe taking care of its own security, that we're up to this, we're going to do this, we're going to play. Either it, it is the moment has arrived to prove that, or the moment has arrived to say, oh my God, the Russians are on the march and everyone rallies around the NATO flag and the US, US, you got to come in and help us, you know, that. so it's really interesting. It's either, it's either a, a showcase for the EU to say, we've arrived now on this stage in terms of security for Europe, or it's back to the future where suddenly it's NATO and the United States and uh, and uh, and the EU is, shows a bit of a high watermark is here, and then it, that's about as good as it gets. It's it's a fascinating thing, and I'm not so sure as I say that in terms of the United States, uh, how that would be received in Washington, where it's back to the future, and and all of a sudden it's Washington's got to go jump back into Europe, and you know because we're begin we're we're still struggling with what the U.S. European relationship should be. Uh, and so Back to the Future wouldn't necessarily land very well in Washington either. You know, I think we'd be going, oh, my God, we've got we've got insurrectionists on the march. We can't handle the Russians, too. So it's a fascinating moment. It's a fascinating moment. And it's a fascinating moment for Macron and for France to be lead, being in charge of the effort. It's not a smaller European nation or a nation that's not a very strong leader. It's it's the French have come at a pivotal time for Europe, for the EU, for European security and what that looks like. Uh, and um, and we'll see what happens in the next couple of months. It's going to be a Putin show and we'll see how everyone fares with it. But it's just it's fascinating. But Andrea, over to you. Well, I think we're at about the time, so I'll let both of you respond to what Jim said and just make one quick point, though, that it, you know, it is, you can frame it as France's moment, the EU's moment, but there's, I mean, also just underscoring that Russia doesn't particularly take France on its own or the EU particularly seriously. And so, I mean, he has shown very little interest in talking with the EU or with Macron individually or any individual EU member state for that matter. So there is kind of a, that, I think that's an important dynamic to this. So we can say it's the EU's moment and France's moment, but I think there's, you know, we all have to keep in mind that Russia is looking to negotiate with the United States because that's where Putin believes, you know, that's his his only adequate kind of counterpart. From his I would, what I would add to that is, so what I was referring to, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it's, and that's a handicap for Macron for the EU is exactly what you're saying is that, that Putin wants to talk to the U.S., but at the same time, this is this 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 is for the EU and for Macron. This is their opportunity to show the strength or to show the European. I mean, it's their it's really a, a stress test for the EU and for France. You know, whether they're ready or not, or whether this it's a great crisis or not for them to be showcased in, it's here, and there's a lot riding on it. And if it turns out poorly. If the EU or Macron come away looking weak or not up to the job or whatever it might be, it will have reverberations. Can you imagine the strategic compass? I mean, if if the EU comes away looking like it was just a third wheel, that it just was part of it, and they, they launch a strategic compass that looks like they're, you know, off to a big future in security, people will laugh and go, 
look, we just had a crisis. You guys didn't matter. And now you've launched this strategic compass and just, just, you know, so I think, and, and I will say NATO strategic concept too. If NATO comes away looking like it didn't do as much as it probably should have or could have, it's going to make the, the strategic concept look like a bag of wind as well. So there's just, just a lot that's going to happen in the next month or two uh, that will have, I think, just a ripple effect uh, uh, that we can't even appreciate right now. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> You're out, but I mean, there's so many things to respond to. Um, we could have kept going for hours. I had also wanted to ask, you know, what it looks like from Paris as Germany's coalition settles in. I mean, we didn't yeah. even touch that. So maybe we'll have to do another podcast entirely to get on all of these, but maybe just turn it back over to, to both of you just for any kind of final reflections to respond what Jim said, and then we'll close out. I just wanted to, 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 to tell Jim that, to be fair, European defense and, and France ambition for European defense were never about tackling alone as Europeans a challenge such as a territorial invasion right. from Russia. Right. Never. Right. It's right. never been on the uh, on any form of discussion. NATO is the place where, uh, of course, uh, this uh, type of conversations should happen. And it's largely unfair to uh, European defense and it's it's the, the, the start of the foundation of its build, of its construction, that uh, this would uh, be the judge of uh, this um, embryonic uh, um, a construction of defense that, but that is that has shown promise. That's why you know I, I partly worry as much about the the Sahel uh, mission as uh, about uh, uh, the question of Russia. And we we should keep in mind that uh, the idea of the strategic compass is not only that um, there would be a sort of common analysis of what's happening around the world, but also a certain sets of initiatives that could concretely make a difference in starting to build the strategic culture and this um, you know, strategic environment in which European defense can really exist. And this will happen down the line after strategic compass, not ahead of it. Could I jump in real quick? Sorry. Sorry, Andrea. Uh, but I, 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 I absolutely agree with what you're saying. You're absolutely correct. But I, I, what I would just add is I think it's still going to be judged in Washington and other places. And, and you're right, it's unfair. I, you know, it's, it's always been NATO on territorial, et cetera, et cetera. But Borrell himself uh, and some others over the past month kept saying, you know, there needs to be this European voice. It's, you know, it's going to be about European security. So it's not necessarily the Russian aggression as much as it is a new European security architecture, if we were going to talk about that with the Russians, that Europe needed to have a voice around the table on something like that. But I, but I think, I think, I think there's enough in the wind over the past month, Borrell and others talking about uh, European, a European voice about European security. That, that uh, whether it's from that or it's just the way Americans and Washingtonians, particularly, and a lot of people I know whose names I won't mention, they're going to judge the EU unfairly. I think on that. I think you're right, uh, but I think it's going to be judged, unfortunately, on these other things, at least in Washington, among people who they don't, they bash the EU anyway, but I think they're gonna, they're gonna say, look, you know, they're talking about strategic autonomy, they couldn't even do anything about, you know, I think we're gonna see that, but I'm sorry for interrupting you, please continue. All right, bring it home. Two uh, very quick points, and the second one to re reiterate what, what Celia said, but the first one is, I think, 
this is where I need to say the role of uh, the presidency of the EU Council is to be an honest broker. And so you're right. I mean, it, it, you know, the fact that it's France probably can either bring it home or create more trouble. But France will have to represent this European unity and and um, and embody this European unity. There is really something uh, very important that is at stake. And actually, that's Macron's agenda. So I think he's, you know, European security and the ability for Europeans um, to handle their security a bit more on their own and to set the strategic agenda is really part of what he's tried to do. But my second point, well, not but, I would say, and my second point, corollary to that, is that I am part of those people who truly believe, I've written it, said it in podcasts, will repeat it, that European sovereignty and being a staunch uh, transatlanticist believer in NATO are not mutually exclusive at all. Quite the contrary, they reinforce one another. The EU is a power in, in its own right, in its own self. And NATO does territorial defense. There is really a sense that, of course, we, you know, the EU will not duplicate what NATO is doing. And I, you know, I think it is a bit unfair to tell us, well, you know, you're not doing enough. And at the same time, if you ambition to do something that is not supposed to be uh, in your area of competencies, then you're out of line. I think you need to give us a little bit more credit. The EU is trying to be stronger. It's, it's building the anti-coercion instrument to fight against economic coercion from different uh, strategic rivals. This is what it's good at. It is building a bit more military capacities, but of course, you know, 21 out of the 30 uh, NATO members are EU member states. And so they rely on NATO to defend them. I think that is quite important. And that is why I said, I think having unity at the NATO-Russia Council, where there is unity not only amongst Europeans, which is quite important, but also between Americans and Europeans is important. And European sovereignty is the ability for the Europeans to be on the agenda, to be at the negotiation table, to want to defend their strategic interests. The very fact that the EU is able to say that, that is a paradigm shift. And I don't think we should undermine that or, you know, it is quite a big change for the EU, especially when you think that this change happened in, in the past few years. I agree. I agree with both of you guys on that. And that let's 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 see how this rolls in the coming months. Yeah. I think the important thing to remember too is like the, the resilience piece and resilience underlies is the foundation of deterrence and defense. And so the EU plays such a critical role in all of that. So yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. And a real quick, quick point too. I think what we're going to see when we talk about unity, European unity, and I think your point, you, you, everyone's your points about NATO in terms of showing European unity there and et cetera. I think what we're going to see with the Russians in the coming months is they're going to put a lot of pressure on all of us. Uh, and we'll see what happens in that unity. We're seeing it with Germany right now. Uh, and let's see what happens. I, but I think that Germany, I mean, that uh, unification, we're going to have to really link arms because the pressure coming from Russia uh, is going to really begin to, and Nord Stream 2, energy, all these tools that they have, misinformation, uh, disinformation, I think it's going to be uh, a lot of pressure on us to break ranks. And so I hope the unity can hold. I think we could have gone on. I have about 10 more things in my mind that I want to say, but um, we will end it here. And I think let's do it again soon. As we get closer to election day, maybe we should check back in and see where we are, what's happening on the Russia-Ukraine front. 
um, I think this is a this is a, a, well an issue we'll want to revisit. So thank you both of you for taking your time um, to record this and all of these really useful insights. Um, I learned a lot, and so really glad you could join us. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. So much. Thank you so much. The campaign is just starting, so let's uh, let's stay tuned.